ultimately the love of God that motivates us towards transformation. Hey, 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 you guys, this is Brandon out here with another episode of Unrefined Podcast. We have a really special guest today, but before we get to that, I just want to have a shout out to Lindsay, my co-host. Hey, Lindsay, how you doing? Hey, doing well. Ready to go. I'd like to introduce to our show our guest today. Interesting, I, I found him on, on Facebook and I, I just started digging his stuff and it, it, it's just great. And I think today you guys you're going to get a lot out of this this is us really diving deeper into who jesus is and how our different lenses that we've had need to be corrected but also we need to really step back and and get back to the fundamentals of the person of jesus and who he is so let me introduce Mm -hmm. dr rob reamer and His passion is to see the kingdom of God advance through spiritual renewal. Rob began Renewal International to assist pastors, churches, and leaders globally to equip the people of God to live in the freedom of Christ, to walk in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit, which that that intrigues me right there. I love that. Passionate about Jesus, personally transparent and saturating the word of God. And if you read his book, which I'm going to recommend, Tenderness of Jesus, that that transparency comes through and he even talks about the difference between authenticity and transparency, which I thought was great too. And he has book Soul Care, which that's primarily his ministry. He does soul care conferences and conferences from his books. Um, I also have his book Spiritual Authority, which I haven't really dove into yet. And I plan on it. And so he's the author of many, many different books, including The Tenderness of Jesus. In addition to his work with Renewal International, Dr. Reamer has served as a professor of pastoral theology at Alliance University in New York and the founding and lead pastor of a church in New England. Now, let me ask you a quick question about it, Rob. Is that like Alliance, like uh, Missionary Alliance based? Yeah, that's correct, Brandon. Christian and Missionary Alliance. It's a a NIAC, right? Am I thinking about the right school? It it used to be a NIAC. It's actually closed now. So oh, okay. they just they just closed uh, June of last year, actually. Oh. Yeah, I uh, actually follow a guy, Dr. Paul King, who is an Alliance Oh, sure. Guy. I know yeah. Paul. Yeah. Paul's and, a and good I man. Love his stuff because he's, I don't know, the Alliance has always, in, in this supernatural world, has always been balanced to me. It's got a lot of really good... Solid founders, A.B. Simpson. I think it was no, obviously mm-hmm. to- Tozer. Yeah. I mean, he was an Alliance pastor, I believe. Yeah, Tozer yeah. is everybody's fave. So, but yeah. Anyway, I just I was when I was reading, that, I was wondering. I was like, yeah, he's got to be an Alliance guy. That's awesome. So, mm-hmm. uh, just give us a little background about yourself. You talk a lot in the tenderness of Jesus, which, by the way, I'm gonna let you set that up. What that was about, what you did for your kids and all that kind of stuff, but. uh um, set us up like kind of your testimony and some of the things that you talk about in the tenderness of Jesus. If it's shareable, you could share with us. Sure. So I grew up going to church. I had my mom and dad got married. My dad was Catholic. My mom was Protestant back then. You know they didn't mix, mm-hmm. and so they eloped. And my mom decided she needed to get us to church after we were born. So they got married. My dad was 20. My mom was 19 or 18, I guess. Had my brother when they were 19, 21. I came along when they're 20 and 22, super young, struggling in marriage. She decides she needs to get us to church. My dad, who was Catholic, would go to the early mass and then he'd come to church with us. You know, so I don't ever remember a time where we weren't in church, but you know, church never made a lot of difference in my life. The truth is, mm-hmm. uh, we were a Bible-believing evangelical church. It was Christian Missionary Alliance Church. But the stuff that I read in the Bible wasn't the stuff that I saw in our church. There were good people doing reasonably moral lifestyle. But, you know, we weren't seeing the stuff that's happening in the Gospels or the Book of Acts. There's nobody getting healed. I didn't even remember anybody getting saved in the church. You know, wow. there's not dramatic testimonies, none of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it didn't make a lot of difference. 
Uh, church was kind of boring to me. When I was about 17, I started dating a girl from church, which I will say that made church more interesting for sure. <laughs> Absolutely, bro. <laughs> she was interesting anyways. Church hadn't changed any, but I liked her. And, uh, you know, when we were 19, um, she broke up with me and I drove away from her house. The great thing about going to church is you know where to turn when you're in a crisis, you know. And uh, I drove away from her house and pulled off the side of the road and I cried out to Jesus. I just said, you know, hey, I gave this girl my heart. Look what happened. And it was my own fault. I was selfish. And so, you know, it wasn't her fault. It was my fault. But I'm sitting there on the side of the road and I have an image of Jesus standing in front of me and I could see the nail prints in his hands in my mind's eye. And I hear the Lord and he speaks to me just in my inner being. It wasn't audible. But he says to me, that's the same way you've treated me your whole life. Mm. And, you know, I see myself in the image and I'm pushing Jesus to the edges of my life. He wasn't at the center. He was at the edge. It wasn't like he wasn't in my life. You know, I mean, I was reading my Bible. I'd already read through my Bible three or four times by that point in my life. I was going to church. Uh, it was just that he wasn't really the center. I was truly the center of my life. And uh, that day I surrendered my life to Christ. I just said to him, Lord, from now on you lead, I'll follow, you've got me, I'm yours. And when I surrendered, I felt an overwhelming, supernatural outpouring of the love of God beyond anything I'd ever experienced. And it was radically transformative. As a matter of fact, I went to work, I don't know if it was the next day or a day later or something, but... I went to work. I was, you know, I was in college working my way through a restaurant, you know, just making some money. And I get to work, man. And this girl sees me. She was the only other believer in the workplace. She sees me from across the restaurant and she look, she yells to me, you've had an encounter with God. Wow. It was so oh, obvious. Wow. Like That's it was cool. so transformative, man. I wore it in my heart and on my face. And I knew I was called to ministry that day. And, uh, you know, that was the day I really decided I was following Jesus all in, sold out, and uh, never turned back. Best decision of my life. Wow. Mm. Yeah, that, that kind of echoes a little bit of my, um, I always joke with people, though, when, when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, I should have been locked up because I was so obnoxious with uh, so much passion. <laughs> <and> <laughs> steel. I didn't mean to be, though, you know. I, I, I just was trying to convert everybody to my new found doctrine. And yeah. It actually wasn't a doctrine. It was a no, person. It was absolutely. A person. But you talk about in your book, The Tenderness of Jesus, about a dark mountain of the soul. And that really resonated with me because I just came out of a like four to five year and I still have a quote diagnosis unquote um, of, of a dark night of the soul. I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Hmm. I've been an ordained minister for probably 30 years. I was ordained Baptist first and then I uh, was part of the vineyard movement for a while. And then I became mm -hmm. an Anglican priest. And so now I'm actually still an Anglican priest, but I don't do anything really with it. We plant house churches um, mm -hmm. through uh, CPM, church planning movements, and DMM. Uh, yep. But I just had this dark night of the soul probably about four or five years ago, and it did something in me that I want to hear your your version, your story too. It made God more real and. It was like I had to go through hell to for him to become more of a person. I don't know if that makes sense mm -hmm. um and and less of a doctrine and and I was never really you know I went through a a stint of uh hyper calvinism kind of thing where doctrine was the major thing but but you know later on it, it doctrine was never that important like above a relationship with god but it was still pretty important and i thought i had to correct people and all this kind of stuff but when i went through this dark night of the soul his tenderness came out in, in my life in a way that i've never experienced it ever did that happen with you with with what you went through in the dark night of the soul if you use the technical term by john of the cross 
he would yeah. say it's not like a, a crisis or a time of hardship, right? So I've been through times of crisis and hardship. I, I had a marriage crisis that uh, radically transformed my life and um, you know, went through a ministry crisis where I was attacked on a regular basis for many years uh, publicly, and that radically transformed my life. And God met me in those dark places. Mm. But the dark night of the soul, when John of the Cross used the phrase, what he meant was the absence of God. You can no longer feel God's presence, access God's presence, and you no longer hear God speaking to you through direct revelation. That's what he meant. And for me, I went through that for about nine months. And it was in a, it was actually during a time of crisis. It was that time I was getting attacked in ministry. So I was under, under a lot of attacks. I had somebody in my church develop a Facebook profile. Wasn't the real name friend. Everybody in my church start writing against me. I had six Mm. radio shows done against me in Boston uh, I had people blogging against me. I was getting killed because I was fighting for revival. I was really preaching yep. in that direction. Yep. But I hadn't really changed my theology at all. I just kind of turned up the heat on the battle for revival. And right. uh, when I was getting killed, though, you know, I went to the monastery where I'd meet alone with the Lord and I'm laying on the floor and I say to the Lord, you know, why? Not like, why me? Poor me. But like, wh- why are people responding like this? I don't get it. And I heard the Lord and he said to me, I'm answering your prayer. And I said to the Lord, I don't know what I've been praying, but if you tell me, I promise I'll stop because this is not what I had in mind, you know, (laughs) but uh, the Lord reminded me I'd been praying for revival. I'd been praying for uh, something that you see in the history of revival and you see in the book of Acts. The apostles in the book of Acts, for example, would lay hands on people and they would impart the Holy Spirit. There would be people, they'd, after they laid hands on, be filled with the Holy Spirit. People be healed. And there was this impartation thing that was going on. And uh, power was being uh, somehow or another transferred and the presence of God being transferred through the laying on of hands. So I'd prayed this prayer for a long time. Lord, give me the ability to impart your spirit if my character and intimacy can sustain it. Because Mm, I had seen all these people in history that had, you know, moved in power in revival, but their character wasn't sustaining the revival movement that they were a part of. And they ended up blowing up their lives. They ended up in all kinds of trouble, you know, sexual immorality, financial impropriety, all kinds of stuff. And so I'd prayed that prayer. And the Lord said to me when I was under attack, I'm answering your prayer. So I went through that attack, that season for a long time. And all of a sudden in the midst of it, you know, the presence of God just dried up, man, just disappeared. And there was no sense of God's voice. Fortunately, I had read John of the Cross. And John said the purpose of the dark night of the soul was purgation. God was purging us at a deeper level. He was trying to get us to die to self. So if you think about Jesus' concept, right? He said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. And, you know, you can't have Christ formed in you where self has been formed in you. You have to die to self in order for Christ to be formed in you. And so the dark night of the soul was a season where God was trying to bring me to the cross to die to self so Christ could be formed in me. And I just kept showing up every day and just saying to the Lord, you know, whatever you're trying to do in me, I I say, yes, I'm in, I'm with you. And, um, you know, I was in this thing nine months. One day my wife walked into the living room and I was just weeping. And she said to me, are you okay? What's wrong? And I just said to her, I just miss him. I'd cultivated a sense of Jesus' presence and his voice my entire life. And all of a sudden, he was just gone. And I just missed him. I was just sobbing. And then, uh, you know, about two weeks after that, she came back into the living room. I'm weeping again. And she said to me, what's wrong? And I said, he's back. And he had just returned in an ever so gentle way. It It wasn't dramatic. 
wasn't anything super significant. It was just all of a sudden I could sense his presence again, his peace, his very tender, gentle presence. And, uh, and his presence touched me so deeply. It had been gone for a while. And, but you know, it's funny after that dark night of the soul, I, I have to say, I probably saw about a thousand fold increase in the power of God in my ministry. It was absolutely amazing. And it was like, you know, when you die to self and you have more of Jesus, you see more of the kingdom. The, the kingdom of God isn't really that complicated, guys. It's like when Jesus shows up, the kingdom comes. When I show up, nothing happens. And so the key really to see more of the kingdom is I have to die to self, see Christ formed in me, be intimate with Jesus so I'm carrying more of his presence so that when I show up, Jesus shows up and the kingdom comes. Hmm. I, I just took notes. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> man. That's that's uh, that's some powerful stuff, Rob. Lindsay, you have anything you want to? Well, yeah. I, it, this may take us a little off course here, but I, I no, just go for it. in 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 the tenderness of Jesus, you talked about. I, I just liked your definition of what I think, if I understand you correctly, your definition of of sovereignty that God is sovereign, and since we're made in His image. We also have a degree of sovereignty, uh, and it sounds like you just think sovereignty means freedom. But I'll let you define it. I'm, I'm just, if you could just define what you mean by sovereignty, and then how that relates to the whole tenderness of Jesus discussion there. Yeah. So you know, part of what I think sometimes people assume with sovereignty is that God dictates everything that happens in the universe. Right. And I don't I don't actually see that biblically. We don't, we don't so <laughs> if that were true, then God dictated somebody getting sexually abused. And that's garbage. God doesn't have any evil to give, the Bible says. So he is not ordaining somebody to be raped. That's absolute Bullcrap. That's a Hebrew word right there. You could look it up. And uh, that is <laughs> yeah, total nonsense. We know the Greek one, scuba. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, you know, the bottom line is what I think about the sovereignty of God, I believe what's happening is God is, is bringing the big picture of the universe together. God is moving things to his ultimate purposes in life. And I think this is incredible, actually. But he's moving things to his ultimate ending, his ultimate purpose, while he's given us all a degree of sovereignty. We're created in his image. Therefore, as image bearers, we have a degree of sovereignty, too. And sovereignty means you have choice. God has ultimate choice. He can do anything he wants that is not inconsistent with his character. He can't lie because he is truth. So, you know, he can't do anything that's going to violate his own nature. We, on the other hand, do not have unlimited choice. We can't become a bird today if we want to become a bird and fly. But we do have choice, and that involves moral decision-making power. And we have a lot of choice in life. So here God gives us fallen beings choice. And yet somehow or another, he can still sovereignly move things to his own ultimate ending, even though billions of us are making terrible choices that are not in alignment with his ultimate will on a regular basis, he still accomplishes his purpose. And I find that utterly, unbelievably amazing about God. And uh, I just think it's incredible. Well, to me, that's so, how do you say it in Latin, the sola dia gloria? I mean, that, to me, that glorifies God more than having a watchmaker that just watched, you know, just, uh, or a robot maker that, that has, I mean. Right. Otherwise he's an evil dictator of the universe. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what you described is a God who is infinitely more powerful than, than a God who actually has fatalistically predetermined everything that happens. There's just Exactly. No... And, and if that were true, then he's fatalistically determining evil. 
Yes. And if he's doing that, then how can he be good? The whole concept of scripture sovereignty is God is so good, he's ultimately going to vanquish evil and accomplish every purpose he has designed for the planet in the end. There will be no more sickness, no more death, no more evil, no more suffering, etc. But in the meantime, he's moving towards his ending even while we're doing evil. I just find that incredible. I just think it's yeah. utterly astounding yeah. to me. So, Yep, I agree. Great question, Lindsay. Uh, well, uh, tell us. Let's let's go into the the book a little bit because obviously, what you just said lays the foundation for the tenderness of Jesus. Um, I was not raised in the church, even though I was made to go to church, and I had all kinds of warped uh, beliefs of it. And, and when I got in high school, I got into existential philosophy and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and so I was mixed up, crazy. And, and so I, I didn't have an understanding of God's goodness because of the philosophical aspects of which comes, you know, that, that all these other characteristics come before his goodness and his tenderness and all this stuff. And so I think it's so important what you just said is, is the foundation for the tenderness. So what, what provoked you to write this book, The Tenderness of Jesus? I was actually on a vacation in Hawaii with my third daughter. I have four kids. They're 28 to 21, 21 to 28, I guess. But my oldest uh, three are girls. And, and my third daughter uh, and I were in Hawaii. My wife stayed back at the hotel. She was swimming. And, and she and I were driving around the northern tip of Maui. And my daughter says to me, Dad, why do I love you and I love your faith? but I hate most Christians and their faith, which sadly is a question bunches of 20-year-olds are asking these days. And at the time, she was 23. And I just said to her, I said, sweetheart, I said, I think you're looking at life through the wrong lenses. I said, you're looking at life first through the lens of the problem of evil in the world. You see all the evil being done, people being abused, people being raped, wars and abuse and abandonment and, you know, the, the prejudice and racism and et cetera, oppression. And I said, you're looking at that and you're trying to make sense of the goodness of God out of the problem of evil. And I said, you, you just can't do that. And then I said, the second lens you're looking through is the problem of evil in the church. You're looking at people who have claimed the name of Jesus, but have done all kinds of evil things. You know, church leaders who have abused people and who have sexually assaulted children and who were sexually immoral and financial improprieties and all this kind of stuff and spiritual yeah. abuse. And I said, you're looking at all this garbage and you're trying to make sense of God out of this. But I said, the mm -hmm. bottom line is, if you're going to understand Jesus, you need to look through, if you're going to understand who God is, you need to look through the lens of the tenderness of Jesus. Mm -hmm. and, and for the next five hours, we talked about the tenderness of Jesus in my own experience and also through the scriptures. And, you know, about a month later, she texted me and just said to me, Dad, that was the most important spiritual conversation I've ever had in my life. It was so helpful. I need to understand this more. I need to read about it. Can you recommend a book? And, you know, I looked around and I didn't find any that I really liked. And I, I, I texted her back and just said to her, you know what, sweetie, I'm just going to write you your own book. And um, she said, I like that even better, Dad. And so I ended up outlining the book that night. And uh, within the next, you know, four weeks or whatever, I wrote the book and then, <clears throat> you know, edited it over the next few months. But um, this book I wrote directly to my four adult children. And I'm talking to the ones I love about the one that I love. And uh, I got to tell you guys, I cried more writing this book, editing this book, reading this book than all the other books I've written put together because of what I just said. You know, I'm writing to the ones that I love about the one that I love. And what we're doing really is like I'm inviting you to sit at the dinner table with us, a family conversation about Jesus. And uh, this is the Jesus that I know, man. This is what he's well, like. And it was amazing because when you choked up in the audible, when you choked up in the audible, I choked up in the audible. So it was like I was right there, you know, uh, hearing you telling me. I have a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old, and uh, um, I'm definitely going to get a copy of this for my 21-year-old. Uh, it, it, uh, he, he's, he's a seeker, 
and he mm. has grown up with parents that have been, you know, pretty much we had a retreat center and has pretty much um Christians haven't been nice to us either. Yeah. And uh it's just hard for him to wrap his mind around. He he's actually more interested in, in stoicism and stuff like that than he is in Christianity, but you know, when you get that taste of the tenderness of Jesus and my older son is a real man's man and but but tenderness of Jesus is not an effeminate kind of thing it is a mm-hmm. very very to me masculine kind of thing that's mm-hmm. that's another hobby horse of mine I won't get into here here is the a lot of the church has been um what's the word I'm looking for feminine well you know sometimes right you read you listen to worship songs sometimes and it sounds like Jesus is a needy boyfriend you know he's not a needy boyfriend <laughs> We've had that discussion a lot. Yeah, but he is super tender. I mean, he's compassionate. He's gentle. He's affectionate. He's loving. And, you know, he's moved with compassion all the time. And I got to tell you, it's the most appealing quality I know about Jesus. It constantly wins my heart. Yeah. I mean, it did me. When I started reading your book and I'm just like, Man, this is this is an amazing. You know, and 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 it didn't surprise me, okay, because this is somewhere else I want to go later on in the show. Um, it didn't surprise me that you did soul care, and I'm assuming, and I want to get into this, that when you do soul care, that you are a a fan of the entire church, not just our little evangelical bubble or or spirit filled evangelical bubble that you have read widely around, like Catholics and. And yes. other other denominations. I mean, because in evangelicalism, soul care is is definitely. I mean, minus Dallas Willard and you know, mm-hmm. and and some of those other guys. Uh, read your Bible Willard. and pray more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic. Well, that's what. Yep, yep. Read your Bible and pray more. And and so anyway, to get back to that, I'm assuming that that your book reads like one of the books like that I've read, like uh, Brother Lawrence or The Way of Unknowing. Or it, it reads like a a soul care, even though it's written to your kids. It's, it, it reads like, well, kind of a two-form thing when I was reading. I thought about this, a, a guide or a manual for soul care, but also as a, like you did a popular sort of systematic theology. You could give your book to somebody and they would have an incredible understanding of the theology of God. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it was amazing when I was reading through it. I'm like, this is doing dual fold. This is this is doing heart and head, and that's mm-hmm. what what we need. So speak to yeah. that, if you will. Well, so soul care. Um, when I, when I think about soul care, I think about freedom and fullness in Christ. Those are the two phrases that I like. Right. So the image that I use with that is this. It's. Uh, it's like um, it's like your soul's like a suitcase, right? So when I travel, I travel all the time doing 150,000 miles a year on a plane. When I travel, I have a suitcase with me. It's all full of nice, neat, folded clothes. They're clean. I get to the hotel, I wear them. I'm at the conference. When I come back home, now they're dirty. Before I can go on my next trip, I have to unpack the dirty clothes before I can pack in nice, neat, clean, folded clothes. Well, you know, a lot of us, man, we're pursuing God and we want more more love, more freedom, more peace, more fullness, all this. But if I if I'm if I'm honest, I think God's in heaven. He's looking at you going, I'm, I'm you're already full. I can't mm-hmm. give you any more until you Amen. empty what's in there. And yep. so you know, there's an emptying before there's a filling. There's a death before the resurrection power. You got to face the cross. And so soul care is really about emptying out the garbage that clutters and keeps us and hinders us from freedom and fullness in Christ. That's really what it is. And, um, you know, uh, I think personally that a lot of us grew up in the church and we knew these things that I'm talking about. Like, for example, I talk about your identity in Christ, right? Right. And you know you're loved by God. You know that you're in Christ. Christ is in you. I mean, if you've ever read your Bible or been to church, you know that you are loved by God. But, you know, here's the problem with the Western, heady, intellectual approach to spirituality. The question is not, 
do you know you're loved by God? The question is, are you living in all of your human interactions like a deeply loved person? Wow. That's when you know it, when you live it. It's not about knowledge. It's about lifestyle adaption. It's about integration. It's about obedience. Without integration, there's no freedom. And the biggest problem with the Western church is we keep filling people with knowledge without helping them to live it out in a way that leads to freedom and fullness. Hmm. You know, that's, that's fascinating. We're, a group of us guys are doing, uh, we're reading through the Bible every 90 days for the whole year. So we repeat it every 90 days. And uh, we were just talking about in first Corinthians, I brought up this, this, I love that little first few chapters because Paul shows right there that hey you can have a bunch of knowledge and not be mature you're still carnal right what matters is boots on the ground what matters is your obedience that's what makes you go from milk to to meat and that's what i'm hearing you say right Yep. And, you know, think about the Pharisees, right? So the Pharisees knew their Bible. The Pharisees could quote all the verses. The Pharisees did all the spiritual disciplines. They prayed, they fasted, they did all this stuff, and they killed Jesus. All their spiritual activity did them no spiritual good whatsoever. And sadly, too often, the church today is more like the Pharisees than they are like Jesus. We have all the knowledge, but it hasn't shifted our hearts Jesus said the most important thing is to love God and love people, right? That kind of sums up all that God was trying to accomplish, he says. So therefore, I say to people, the most important question you're ever going to answer is this. Do you love God more this year than you did two years ago? Do you love people more today than you did a year and a half ago? If the answer to that is yes, you're probably on a decent journey. If the answer Mm -hmm. to that is no, then you better repent and change what you're doing because what you're doing ain't working. Wow. Yeah, and see, and that's what my dark night of the soul really did to me because, yeah, during my dark night, I did. I was the same. I didn't hear God for like almost two or two or three years. I, and that's why I was suicidal because the one person that I always trusted that I knew I could go to, I, I didn't hear. And, and I was like, if I felt like Peter, I mean, where am I going to go, Lord? You're, you right. have the words of eternal life, and you're not talking. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's going on? You know, and that 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 is is what came through it, but that changed my perspective of of people, and I, I came to a real understanding of of how to be merciful with people without letting them run all over me, but at the same time, still always give them the benefit of the doubt and realize that, you know, their story's not done yet, just like mine's not done yet. Amen. And and mm-hmm. I might catch them on a bad day like somebody catches me on a bad day. I, I mean, there, I've had so many bad days, I wouldn't want anybody to judge me <laughs> and my Christianity on bad days. So, yeah. and And that's just not taught in part of the church. You know, there are parts of the church that do teach this, and it tends to focus. Sometimes it'll go into more legalism and and a religious spirit. And I wanted to talk to you about that because that was one of my takeaways from your book is you discussed uh, how how you see God, but then also about the religious spirit that's in the church. Uh, You want to speak about that? Talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, again, the Pharisees kind of exemplify the religious spirit, right? So they're people that are focused on doing the right things. They're focused on believing the right things. And they're focused on, by doing the right things, I mean, spiritual disciplines, tithing, reading their Bible, praying. And they're focused on looking good. There's a lot of image management. And yeah. um, yeah, but what isn't going on is a focus on the heart and soul. And Jesus says it's out of the overflow of the heart that a person acts and speaks and has motives. The issue is always about the heart. And so, you know, I want my heart to be broken, humble, and contrite before the Lord. Authentic humility begins with honesty, ends with responsibility. And somewhere in the middle, 
is death to self, where we stop making life all about us and we center our lives on Jesus and make our life more about him and others. And, you know, I got to tell you guys, as I travel around the world and, you know, I've ministered on every single continent except Antarctica, and I'll just tell you that the single greatest problem in the church today worldwide is we're making it too much about us and not enough about Jesus. We are obsessed with our own rights, our own opinions, our own feelings, our own wants, our own needs, our own desires, our own visions, our own resources, capabilities, abilities, but we're not obsessed with Jesus. And uh, I just think that was, you know, sort of like the Pharisees. They were too self-focused, very self-consumed. And if we're ever going to have Christ formed in us, we have to embrace the cross, die to self, so that we can become obsessed with Jesus and be marked by his presence. You know, Rob, one, you make that statement about one of the biggest problems with the church. You know, I, I, I kind of feel, and this is me being transparent, is I'd take it a step further and say ministers are even a step up from that with with a lot of our hubris and 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 then we code it with ministry where it looks right. to the outside like oh we're doing good when when it's just hiding our self-centeredness and our desire to be successful and uh, have the numbers and the um you know when I was in seminary it was a uh, Butts, buildings, and, and bucks. <laughs> Since we've made the shift to the more DMM type stuff, it, it it's come. Uh, there's a, a a teacher out there who I really respect her, and she says this. You know, you just love the one in front of you, and and I, I just uh, that that is what's changed, and it's actually you know given me more leadership skills to to focus. It's just one of those kingdom paradoxes. I focus on one, and I'm starting to be able to have the God's opened up the door for more, you know, through yeah. the podcast and different stuff. Anyway, and, and but I just think that uh, ministers are are a huge, huge part of that. And and we, like you said, we need to come down and be transparent, and we need to be authentic, which is really, really hard to do in Western church society, you know, culture. And yet I think it draws people to Jesus. You know, you think about yes. Paul, right? He's made perfect in his weakness, and we're trying to be perfected in our strengths. And it's just mm -hmm. not the way Christianity works. And, you know, we need to be, again, authentic humility. God is irresistibly attracted to the contrite, humble person. And, you know, the proud always walk alone. And authentic humility always begins with honesty. You just have to get honest. You got to get honest with God, and then you need to be honest with others. And when you're walking with that kind of authentic humility, God's presence is absolutely going to be attracted to that kind of stuff. He just loves it. Hmm. Yeah, the tenderness of, of Jesus. Lindsay, you have anything? No, I mean, man, I've just... Got two pages on my yellow note pad here. <laughs> Stuff I'm writing. Go for down. it, man. Just, well, I don't really have a question. I'm just. Oh, okay. I'm just, I'm just, just taking writing notes. a bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I love that telling the ones I love about the one that I love. I, and I just, just, you couldn't have put that better. And yeah, I mean, the whole dark night of the soul thing that it doesn't necessarily have to be come from some time of crisis but i imagine that helps <laughs> yeah just just taking lots of notes here well let me ask you uh ask you this rob when you were writing the tenderness of jesus to your kids if you could encapsulate just like in a paragraph uh what you learned the most out of writing this book and and giving it to your kids what 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 would you think that would be uh, you know, I probably would say this. When you look at God through this lens, and at the end of the book I talk about this, you have to look, to see the tenderness of Jesus, you have to look through the lens of the cross and the lens of eternity. 
The lens of the cross shows us that God cares. You know, when I look at the cross, I think to myself, there's a lot of things in life that I don't understand. I don't understand why this happened or why that happened or why God allowed this, why God allowed that. But I know God cares when I look through the lens of the cross. He didn't sit aloof in heaven indifferent to my suffering. He became one of us and suffered with us and suffered for us on the cross. So it proves to me God's compassionate, caring goodness. And so you got to look through the lens of the cross. And, you know, the second one is you got to look through the lens of eternity. Why? Because everything in this world won't work out. Um, You know, there's stuff in this life that doesn't work out. You're going to pray for people to come to faith and they're not going to come to know Jesus. You're going to pray for people to be healed and they're going to die. You're going to pray for people to break free from an addiction and they're going to battle it their entire life. You're going to pray for injustice to be overcome and injustice is going to continue to thrive in certain sections of the world. We could pray for the elimination of sexual trafficking, sexual abuse and trafficking and all that, but it's still going to happen in our lifetime. But at the end of the day, what I know is there is a day in history where God will have the final word. And, you know, Jesus will triumph. Good will win. Evil will be eliminated. And there's a place where there will be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more injustice, no more sin, no more temptation, no more prejudice, no more gender bias. It will all be done away with sin and all of its effects. And when you see that, you realize that when you suffer on this earth and when you feel the emptiness of this world, it is because you were designed for another place. You are homesick the entire time you're on this planet. You feel homesickness. The emptiness you feel is a homesickness. It's your longing for your eternal citizenship, your eternal home. You know, I guys, I just had my best friend die this week. And mm, okay. uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was unexpected, you know, and, um, and, you know, I've, I feel this, this is part of grief. I feel this emptiness, but it reminds me, you know, it's, it's homesickness. That's what it is. I feel homesick and that's the emptiness that I feel. It's like when I travel sometimes and I feel this homesick feeling and it's an empty longing. And I think to myself, here's the good news about that emptiness that we feel on earth. It's there to remind us that we have a home. There's a real home. There's a place we're called to. And that emptiness points me to my eternal citizenship. And my job when I feel emptiness is to sink deep roots in my eternal citizenship and recognize, like Paul always understood, that I'm just passing through this world and I belong to another. And the deeper my roots are in heaven, the more effective I am on earth because I am not attached to all of the people's opinions on earth while I can love them without any strings attached because my attachment is to Jesus and his kingdom. Wow. I'm speechless. Yeah, <laughs> I'm speechless. That's incredible. That uh, it's brought me to tears. Um, it reminds me a lot of C.S. Lewis and his talking about joy. You know, I think joy in that and what you're talking about are, yeah, that that looking to the eternal and the end is is his joy, and we get glimpses of it in this, um, you know, world, but we won't feel it till the end. And the other thing we talk a lot about home. But I, I've really, I've really begun to think that home is people, it's community, mm-hmm. it's it's relationships mm-hmm. more than it is a place or a you know obviously a building or any of that and that kind of stuff. So, you know, you had a friend who went home, and now you're you're homesick for the the place where he is because you miss him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. anyway, that's just that's that's incredibly powerful stuff. Uh, I have a a question. Have you found 
when talking about the tenderness of Jesus that you always have this like blowback sort of pushback of people who say, well, that'll, that'll breed familiarity and God's not holy enough or we're not reverent enough or, or any, any of that kind of stuff. I'm, I, the reason I say that is because we discussed this Sunday in house church and, and I'm trying to find this, there's this balance between, you know, the father being, you want to respect and have all and but yet, I see what's so lacking in the church is not that it's it's it is a an intimacy that's not over familiarity, but yet at the same time is you know intimate enough to be life changing. Does that make sense, Rob? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, if you think about Paul's argument in Romans and other places as well, it's ultimately the love of God that motivates us towards transformation. And when you experience this deep, incredible, revelatory, experiential knowledge of the love of God, not just head knowledge, you don't want to violate the friendship that he's offering. You don't want to dishonor the one that you love. The, the thing that causes us to honor God, to revere God, to walk in holiness with God is the fact that we are so awestruck and so deeply transformed by his loving imminence, his presence, that we would never want to dishonor him. Mm. And, you know, I, I think I have greater awe and reverence for God because of his tenderness than I do just because he's transcendent and holy and omnipotent and all those yeah. big theological words. That's but, profound. And I just, it just occurred to me, you know, I, I think, I think God's got the awe and holiness and, and, and otherness transcendence down. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it just occurred to me, what are we worried about there? If we truly encounter him, we're we're gonna know that he's he's greater than us. He's 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 more powerful, he's transcendent. Not that that's not a good question. And yeah, you know, we don't want to get into this sort of superficial, like Pollyanna, overly sweet sort of view, or just this God is just some dude. I mean, I mean that's a that's a good question. Familiarity breeds content sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, but but I mean, I think if we truly encounter God, I mean, he just, he can't help mm. but be transcendent. <laughs> We're just yeah. going to know that. Yeah. yeah. That, that's just my take on it. When I look back on my own journey, you know, so I meet God when I'm 19. I surrender my life to Jesus because I have this encounter. You know, the thing I think about was I am in this situation having a breakup because I've been self-centered. And yet Jesus doesn't really confront me to make me feel horrible. He is showing me his tenderness that I've missed out on, his compassion, his love that I've been refusing. And that causes me to surrender. And now I experience all this revelation of his love. And I got to tell you, that's what made me want to follow Jesus. Hmm. When I go through the marriage crisis, and, you know, we're in the middle of this marriage crisis. And again, we're in a marriage crisis in part because it's my fault. I've been too selfish. I've been, you know, sowing seeds of selfishness and anger in my marriage. And now I'm reaping a field of weeds in my marriage, but it's my doing. And yet what I sense from Jesus in that is incredible tenderness, compassion, and love. And he's leading me into wholeness through his love. He's, there's no judgment. You know, Jesus has this remarkable capacity to hang around with sinners, and yet sinners don't feel judged or hated or condemned by Jesus. They feel uh, he's approachable. He's loving them. And that's what motivates them to change. And mm. I think so often in the church, we feel this need to defend and protect God. I mean, isn't yeah. God big enough to defend and protect himself? And yet, you know, when I read Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, in the past, God spoke in all these different ways through prophets and all this stuff. But now he speaks through Jesus. This is if you want to know what God is like, you got to look to Jesus. That's our best 
way of experiencing and knowing who God really is. And when you look at Jesus in the Gospels, he's utterly tender-hearted with the worst of humanity. And when they come to Jesus, they never find judgment. They only find his compassion. That's the Jesus that I know, man. That's the Jesus that I've experienced. That's the Jesus that transformed my life. Well, and that's the Jesus the world needs to know, too. That's the Jesus yeah. we need to preach. That's the, like you say in your book, which I don't want to reveal too much, that is good news, that, that Jesus is, is tender. You know, and I find it really interesting, the early church fathers, um, yeah, they dealt with the cross and, and different stuff like that, but their primary teaching was that, hey, Jesus discloses the Father. That is... You know, that is so essential and so important. It's not more important than the cross, but it, it is definitely the it, it suits the framework of, of the cross. And we've got to have an understanding of, you know, we see the father's tenderness. We see the father's love. We see the father's mercy, all that through Jesus's life. And that is fundamental. And I mean, I always call this shade tree theology, but I almost wonder if we if we would have never sinned Adam and Eve, then possibly Jesus would have come to Eve would have come anyway because we still would have had need to grow in his grace and grow and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's neither here nor there. That's theoretical. Yeah. But but I almost wonder that if the even even as important as the cross is, but it was a it was an effort to deal with the sin. The ultimate thing was for Jesus to reveal the Father. Well, and the cross reveals his love. Yes. You know, I mean, yes. this is how we know he loves us. It's the ultimate expression of love. And then he calls us to pick up our cross. But if you think about it, the cross represents the love of Jesus. So he's calling us from the cross to pick up our cross. Now, it's an expression of us to be able to show Jesus that we trust him and we love him because of his love on the cross. Now we die to self. And you know what's amazing is, when we do die, we experience his resurrection power. So you know what happens is all we get is a deeper cycle of the love of God poured out in our heart through resurrection presence. And so the, the cross produces love on the front end, and it produces love when you pick up your cross and die on the back end. So I just find the cross, there is no resurrection life without the cross. It's, it's a beautiful symbol of love. Both my love for him when I pick up my cross, his love for me, and then yeah. his love for me both on the cross, but on, on the back end, like I said, I, after I died to self, I experienced his life poured out in me through the cross that he's called me to. It's a win-win. We oh, can't my. lose. You yeah. can't. We can't. The only lose, the only lose for us is if we won't pick up our cross and won't acknowledge his cross. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, all right. I have um, two questions left. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'd like, I'd like to know your top three books on soul care besides yours. I know yours is yours is up there, but but uh, um, I'm thinking more like older, ancient, or yeah, yeah. What, yeah. Are, what are you classics? How about that? What are your top three classic soul care books? Uh, so my all-time favorite book that I've read more than any other book is a book by Francois Fenelon, F-E-N-E-L-O-N, and the book is called Let Go. It actually probably should have been entitled Just Shut Up and Die. That would have been a more accurate title, <laughs> except he does it in a very loving way. He's incredibly tender. He has been deeply impacted by the tenderness of Jesus. But his essential premise in the book is the thing that's keeping you from experiencing the fullness of God in your life is your self-life. You're making life too much about you. And if you will die to self, if you will embrace Jesus' uh, invitation to pick up your cross, you will experience the fullness of Jesus' presence, love, and life flowing through you. And um, it is, I've read it more than 50 times. Uh, the only book I've read more in my life is the Bible. And I've read it as much as I've read it because no one in the history of the church that I've ever read understands death to self and its benefits like Fenelon. And, you know, no one that I know of 
has painted the picture of this crucified life and its resurrection benefit as well as Fenelon has. So it's uh, by far my all-time favorite, number one on my list. So that's where I'd start, and that's a classic. Um, And that one goes back quite a ways. There's There's an ancient book, really ancient. Now we're going way back, but... Um, there's a book written by Athanasius, and the book is called, uh, um, it's about the first desert father, Anthony. The Life of St. Anthony is called. Mm. Athanasius wrote a book called The Life of St. Anthony. And uh, this book was written in the 300s, but it's a book that, again, deals with freedom and fullness. It deals with the life of Christ uh, being released through a human in a way that produces some pretty dramatic, significant, miraculous activity. It's a great read, and I uh, really, really like it. It's one of my faves, too. Um, and then I'll move to the more moderns and just throw a bunch of people together really fast. But uh, okay. I, too, I like Dallas Willard. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think, you know, his stuff will become classic. I yep. do. yep. Um, I, I think Richard Foster's got some yes. stuff there that's worth reading. Another classic, uh, I think will will be a classic as time goes on. Some of his stuff, uh, I think, uh, you know, I really uh, have liked Thomas Ashbrook's book Mansions of the Heart, where he's looking at uh, Teresa Vavila's book mansions of the heart but her stuff is sometimes pretty tough to access he takes the cookies and puts it on the lower shelf for mere mortals and uh it's really worth reading i think some of ruth haley barton's stuff is really solid um and i think uh you know her book uh invitation to solitude and silence was Mm -hmm. really brilliant super helpful and uh one last and that is david benner uh the gift of being uh, yourself by David Benner. Really liked that book a lot. Really helped shape me. So there's a bunch, but that's awesome. I mean, that's 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 perfect. And and you did what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to get outside of just you know the the what I consider the pop evangelical culture. Even though there's a lot of books out there that are those that are good, yeah. you know. But yep. but there's a depth to your book that is not in the pop event. I mean, uh, and I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, I mean, do you know, Mark Sayers? Yes. Mark Sayers. I was preaching at his church in September and Mark and I have become friends. He's a good guy. I really like him a lot. And, uh, when he introduced me to his people, he said, Rob writes like one of the ancients. And there's a depth to his writing that's just not found today. And I really appreciated that. You know, I mean, it's um, I, that the list of those evangelicals that I mentioned, Foster, Willard, um, yeah. they they have that. Yep. There's a it's depth. A, it's a synergy of head and heart. Mm, yeah. yeah. And, and they've also all had experience with Jesus. Yes. It's yes. not just theology. Yeah. They know they know and encounter him. Yeah, I tell people all the time, a man with a theology doesn't have as much as a man with an encounter. That's exactly and that that rubs a lot of doctrine police people the wrong way because they think I'm, you know, making light of doctrine, which I'm not. But yeah, a, a man with an encounter has more than a man with a doctrine. And uh I don't know if somebody famous said that, but I've heard it somewhere, and I just I just live by it now. It's just yeah. where I want to live. I want to I want to be like Jesus. I want to pursue Jesus, and I want to reveal Jesus. That's exactly right. Well, you know, people come up to me all the time, Brandon. They say, "I feel like I know you. I've read your book," but they don't know me. And then I have these really deep and intimate people in my life, like my friend Martin, who just died, my wife, etc. They know me. It was the same with the Bible. You could read the Bible and not know Jesus, just know about him. The Pharisees read their Bible and killed the one it was pointing to. So, you know, you got to have more than theology. You have to have encounter. I always say the purpose Mm -hmm. of reading the Bible isn't to know the Bible. The purpose of reading the Bible is to encounter the living God. Amen. Yes, Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, let me ask you this. And what is 
your most miraculous encounter that you've ever encountered since you've been saved that is like up there? If it's private, that's fine. If there's something like a second or third that's not private, but what what's the most miraculous event that you've ever seen? Uh, well, I would say a couple of years ago I was in Brazil. I've got a couple, but this one I'll yeah. choose. But a couple of years ago I was in Brazil and I prayed for a woman who had a tumor on her neck that was so large it came out past her chin. And um, and I just said, go in Jesus' name. And the thing shrunk under my hand. Oh it gosh. reduced to about two-thirds <laughs> size. And then, you know, prayed one more sentence and it totally was gone, completely 100% gone. Oh. And I mean, they were jumping up and down, her, her and her husband and weeping. And I was, you know, just weeping with them. But it was profound, uh, really amazing thing to see. Well, see, that, that reminds me of the stories of Azusa, you know, back when they would see arms grow back and, you know, yeah. creative miracles and stuff like that. I've prayed for people's legs to be straightened and lengthened and, you know, I mean, <laughs> but like to see something like that, Rob, that, that, man, that would make my, my rational postmodern brain go tilt totally <laughs> well you know i gotta tell you you have encounters with jesus the risen one like that and it does change you and it changes your faith when you go to pray for people wow mm -hmm. well that that that's exciting that in, that inspires me actually yeah just this has been really kind of rubber meets the road. I mean, when you talk about love and tenderness, things can get kind of, to me anyway, ethereal and yeah, and nice. But I mean, yeah, this just felt really practical and rubber meets the road. So yeah, thanks, Rob. Yeah, glad to be with you guys. Where can everybody find you or get a hold of you? What are the way, different ways? We're going to put this in the show notes too, but I just want to give you a chance to yeah, if if you go out to our website, that's probably the easiest way to see all the stuff that I'm doing, all the where, places I'm speaking and all that. Um, and our website is renewalinternational.org, renewalinternational.org. Cool, cool. Yeah, I'm actually, <laughs> Sandy and I were talking about it uh, before the program. I'm actually kind of interested in your soul care for leaders. Thank you so much for being on our show. I mean, this is just, it's what we need to hear because I'm going to read your next book, Authority. And so now I have a foundation of the tenderness of God that he wants to give me authority. So the authority is going to come easier. Anyway, I'm trying to put that together. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you would, if, if you don't mind, would you pray for us? Absolutely. Lord, I pray for each of us here, both uh, these guys and me, and also the people that are listening in here. I pray for each of us not just to know about you, but to have a deep, ever-deepening intimacy with you. I pray we might experience the release and revelation of the love of Jesus in our hearts by the Holy Spirit we might know the tenderness of Jesus. We might hear your voice. We might walk and step with you with an absolute blazing, fiery passion for you because we've met you and know you. You know, I think about that verse in Acts where it says the, you know, those early disciples Peter was preaching and, and they looked at him, the Sanhedrin, and they, they knew they had been with Jesus. May it be true of us, Lord, that the people around us would know we have been with Jesus. We don't know about him. We've been with Jesus, and we are marked by his presence. Everywhere we go, may we carry your presence to the people around us, and may it advance your kingdom to your glory. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for listening and supporting us. And remember... Stay naturally supernatural.